You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. SolarWinds 8K suggests the possible scope of the sunburst incident. CISA leads the U.S. federal post-attack mopping up as more agencies are known to have been affected. How FireEye found the SolarWinds backdoor. GCHQ is looking for possible signs of sunburst in the U.K. Operation Earth Kitsune is attributed to North Korea. Google explains yesterday's outage. Ben Yellen looks at retail privacy issues. Our guest is Jason Casey from Beyond Identity on going passwordless. And if you have trouble getting things done while working from home, maybe blame it on the dogs. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. SolarWinds, in a Form 8K the company filed with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission yesterday, said that some 33,000 customers had potentially been exposed by vulnerabilities in its Orion platform and that it's notifying them of the risk. The company added, however, that it believed, quote, the actual number of customers that may have had an installation of the Orion products that contained this vulnerability to be fewer than 18,000, end quote, which is still a disturbingly large number. The company expects to make a patch available sometime today. CISA issued Emergency Directive 21-01 late Sunday. Lawfare has a quick account of what the directive meant for U.S. federal organizations and many of their contractors. In many cases, it meant a lot of time with dodgy network availability. CISA required all agencies covered by the emergency directive to report completion of required detection and remediation activities by noon yesterday, which itself is an index of how serious the agency regards the threat. The Washington Post reports that five major U.S. agencies, the Departments of State, Homeland Security, Commerce and the Treasury, and the National Institute of Health, are now known to have been affected. It's worth noting that a supply chain attack can be notoriously difficult to contain. It's not entirely clear how the spies, presumably Russia's SVR, familiarly known as Cozy Bear, obtained access to SolarWinds and thus to the software supply chain. But ZDNet reports that a compromise of the company's Microsoft Office 365 email and Office productivity accounts may have provided a point of entry. Bloomberg reports that FireEye found the SolarWinds compromise in the course of investigating the breach of its own red-teaming tools. They found Cozy Bear's sunburst backdoor and disclosed its existence to both SolarWinds and law enforcement. 
The security company Velexity says this incident is connected to a 2019 campaign against think tanks that continued into 2020. Velexity writes, quote, The primary goal of the Dark Halo threat actor was to obtain the emails of specific individuals at the think tank. This included a handful of select executives, policy experts, and the IT staff at the organization. Velexity notes its investigations are directly related to the FireEye report based on overlap between command and control domains and other related indicators, such as a backdoored server running SolarWinds Orion, end quote. Dark Halo sounds a lot more sinister than Cozy Bear. We prefer Cozy Bear, if only because the word on the street is that the Russian organs, however focused, sophisticated, and determined they may be, hate being thought of as cuddly and inoffensive. So stay cozy, comrades. Consensus holds that the effects of the cyber espionage will continue to spread. The Telegraph reports that GCHQ is investigating the potential impact of the incident on the UK. The risk is complex. There is, of course, the risk that sensitive information British agencies may have shared with their US counterparts could have been compromised, or that Cozy Bear might have succeeded in executing a transatlantic pivot. But the principal risk is more immediate and direct. SolarWinds customers in the UK include the Ministry of Defense, the Cabinet Office, GCHQ, and other government organizations. As we say, GCHQ and its National Cybersecurity Center have the incident under investigation. An NCSC representative told Mail Online, quote, The NCSC is working closely with FireEye and international partners on this incident. Investigations are ongoing, and we are working extensively with partners and stakeholders to assess any UK impact. The NCSC recommends that organizations read FireEye's update on their investigation and follow the company's suggested security mitigations. End quote. Turning to another cyber espionage campaign, Trend Micro this morning published an update to its research into what it's calling Operation Earth Kitsune. While the name may be drawn from the Japanese word for fox, one with strong folkloric associations, Trend Micro has concluded that it's a North Korean unit, APT-37, also known as Reaper or Group 123. Their evidence is circumstantial but compelling, depending upon such things as insights into the malware deployed and the development environment in which that malware was built. Google has an explanation for yesterday morning's outage that affected services worldwide. It looked at the time like a glitch and not a hack, and that's been borne out by what Mountain View discovered during troubleshooting. Google tweeted an explanation yesterday. At 3.47 a.m. Pacific time, Google experienced an authentication system outage for approximately 45 minutes due to an internal storage quota issue. This was resolved at 4.32 a.m. Pacific time, and all services are now restored. By consensus, remote work will remain the norm in 2021, and it will probably remain widespread even after the pandemic eases. But a CyberArk study suggests that companies have their work cut out for them, dealing with unfortunate remote worker security habits. The personal and professional seem harder to keep apart while working online, and poor personal security practices, like sharing passwords and devices with family members, make that blurred boundary risky territory. Distracted minds make security mistakes, and there are plenty of distractions at home. 
CyberArk says, for example, 45% of remote employees cite disruption from family and pets as the biggest challenge of remote work, followed by balancing work and personal life at 43% and Zoom fatigue, which came in at 34%. Our staff can confirm that dogs are affecting working conditions. Some, at least, of our local dogs have been unusually frisky under conditions of social isolation. Maybe it's because they're not wearing masks. An ImmunoWeb study finds other security issues with working from home. The company thinks remote work with reduced face-to-face contact and fewer opportunities for quick, responsive, even serendipitous collaboration will raise problems for DevSecOps. With respect to law and policy, J.D. Supra predicts that the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission's report will serve as a reliable guide to their evolution. As CSO points out, The Commission's report has already influenced the U.S. National Defense Authorization Act. It's likely to do more than that. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. My first recollection of using a password goes back to signing into a local dial-up BBS when I was probably 13 years old or so. That was a long time ago. And yet, here we are, still using passwords on a regular basis. Yes, we've got things like Touch ID and Face ID and password managers and multi-factor authentication. But that passwordless world 
remains frustratingly elusive. Jason Casey is Chief Technology Officer at Beyond Identity, and he joins us to explain what passwordless actually means. Jason, thanks for joining us here at the CyberWire. Thanks for having me. Passwords are by design end-user friction, and they haven't changed much in the last 20 years other than just saying things like they need to be longer, they need to always be high entropy, and you need to rotate them on a regular basis. And so, sure, you can pull a password manager to manage some of that complexity, but when we think about who uses passwords in the world, or essentially everyone, we're not really making it possible for the rest of the world to be successful. Um, another way of looking at it is design, user interaction, uh, ease of use from a person perspective has never really been considered uh, in terms of uh, passwords. And, and then you flip the coin over and you realize passwords are the front door uh, for bad things to walk through, right? Like ultimately, these knowledge factors create pools of risk called password databases that regularly get harvested uh, they get sold and bartered and leveraged uh, to maybe not break back into the company that they were stole from, but exploiting human behavior, which is it's really hard to remember lots of high entropy <laughs> random strings. So I'm going to reuse things and I'm going to reuse things across different sites. Rather than patch the problem, why don't we fix the root cause? Does this really require a shift in the way that people think about this, about their their online identities and how they how they protect their information that's out there? It does actually provide a, a different perspective, but we think people are already moving in that direction. And so if you look at uh, uh, the world of the, the business world in COVID, uh, you have these highly disparate workforces where most of them were not before. And all of these enterprise organizations that had built security infrastructure that baked knowledge in about infrastructure, where people are coming from, what they're working on. These are the organizations that have been scrambling during COVID uh, to try and shift and change their mindset. Whereas the organizations that had really kind of embraced this digital transformation journey, or uh, as well as a, a, a more zero trust or, or beyond corp style of thinking about security, basically they were more hand, they, they were in a mindset that was better able to handle this big shift in, in how workers behave. I suppose also having that, um, the ability, as you say, to, to escalate things, to have some granularity that, you know, not everything needs to have the same degree of scrutiny as, as other things. Are you moving $10,000 between bank accounts? Maybe friction's okay in that scenario. Right. Or, or are you moving, maybe you're paying a $5 bill, but you're paying a $5 bill and you're operating from a device that you haven't really used in a while, and you're in a part of the country that we've never seen you travel to, maybe maybe that deserves a little bit more friction. Mm-hmm. But if I'm at my corner grocery store, you know, buying a tank of gas or a, a candy bar, uh, I want that to happen as quickly as possible. If the risk is low, the friction should be as well. That's Jason Casey from Beyond Identity.
And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. But more important than any of that, he is my co-host on the Caveat podcast. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Pretty good, Dave. How are you? Not bad, not bad. Uh, interesting article. This is uh, from Vox on their uh, Recode section. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we are deep in the uh, holiday season here, getting our Christmas shopping done and taking care of our friends and family for Hanukkah or whatever it is we celebrate. And uh, this article is uh, titled, How Retailers Track Your Every Move in Exchange for Coupons and Convenience. The subtitle is, Attention Shoppers, Your Data Has Never Been More Valuable, article written by Sarah Morrison. Uh, what's going on here, Ben? So this article is sort of an all-encompassing summary of what retailers are doing with our data. I think one of the interesting elements of this is it's very timely for the end of 2020. Uh, the hook in this article is that not so long ago, i.e. last February, many of us used to go to, to brick-and-mortar stores. Uh, you could <laughs> browse things. You could try on shirts and dresses before you decided to buy them. You could, you know, be relatively anonymous, maybe even pay in cash where it's it's untraceable. Right. Uh, now, more of us are online shopping. Uh, it's not as safe to go into brick and mortar stores, you know, even the ones that are open and, and are not restricted. And because yeah. more of us are shopping online, we are trading convenience and potential coupons for what amounts to a pretty big invasion of personal privacy because these companies collect a lot of data on us. Um, mm -hmm. We have extreme examples uh, like Nordstrom, which was collecting data about us while we were in their store uh, by having our tricking our cell phones into transmitting real-time data. But, you know, more typically, it's that these stores will lure us into their applications by offering us coupons, you know, you get 10% off Target by downloading the application or whatever. Right, right. Not to pick on any individual company. So they lure us in that way, and then they have us opt in to a bunch of EULAs that allow our information to be shared pretty broadly. And we know that, that information <laughs> is purchased by data brokers. Um, in some cases, it's sold by the cell phone companies itself. Uh, yeah. And it's a lot of information. I mean, it's not just our purchasing habits. It's, you know, using GPS tracking to figuring out uh, our personal habits, what kind of light, what kind of lives we lead. It's getting information from applications that we'd never suspect would be sharing personally identifiable information. You know, I always talk about when I order a sandwich from Jimmy John's, uh, they're uh, learning a lot more about me than, than you'd think. Um, <laughs> just by sharing my location, just to, yeah. by, by agreeing to their terms of service, um, you know, by uh, allowing them to connect to my other social media profiles. Right, um, right. So, you know, I think in some ways this is sort of something that we already knew, but I think it's kind of bringing into focus that... There is no free lunch here. Um, yeah. You are paying for something with those coupons. Most of us don't think about them because most of us will never face the consequences of, you know, data brokers purchasing information on us uh, or selling information on us and, you know, companies knowing the intimate details of our lives. But I think, you know, that's something that should be on every person's mind before they sign those terms and conditions. Yeah, you know, I, I think about the... The grocery store loyalty programs. And, uh, you know, I have a, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, who is very bitter 
uh, at the fact that in order to get the the various discounts and sales that are around the grocery store, while he's or well in the old days when we used to you know browse through the grocery store, seems um, so long ago now. I know <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that you you know you have to get, in exchange for giving them their your information in exchange for allowing them to track your purchases, you get these discounts. Uh, he wants the discounts without the tracking. Uh, and my, my, I feel differently about it. In this case, I feel as, as long as it's all above board and this is a deal you're willing to make to say, right. okay, yeah, I will, it's, it's optional. You can track me in exchange for these discounts. And, and that's the arrangement we've made here. And either I'm okay with it or I'm not. Right. I mean, in contract law, we talk about, you know, these bargained for exchanges where as long as the terms and conditions are clear, you know, if somebody really values something and you really value something else, those are legal grounds to make a trade. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I think that's what's happening here. As long as uh, consumers are aware that this is what's happening, that by getting these, you know, 10 cent discounts on cereal boxes, you're... (laughs) <laughs> potentially uh, providing uh, your local grocery store a lot of private information about yourself. As long as that uh, information is widely understood, I, I think your perspective is right. It is, you know, it is a bargained for exchange. It's fair. The problem yeah. we run into is that just most people aren't aware that that's what they're bargaining for. Right. Um, and I don't think we've properly answered, uh, just from a policy perspective, this problem of the fact that most people don't read terms and conditions. And are just blissfully unaware of what they're giving up when they agree to use an application in exchange for a coupon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think Mm -hmm. in the long term, it's going to be about um, education around these things, just alerting people and giving people meaningful information uh, before they agree to these terms and conditions. Well, let me add, uh, for those of you who are interested in a certain degree of anonymity at the grocery store, I have yet to experience uh, a grocery store where if I put in the phone number 867-5309, it's not already in the system. Oh, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised. Jenny, they got just your put, number. Yep. Just put just put your area code and 867-5309. Jenny is in the system and you get all the discounts you want. And, and boy, Jenny buys a lot of stuff. Dave, I resent you for the fact that that song is going to be in my head the rest of the day. Well, so, there you so thank go. you for Congrat- that. Congrats. Yeah, yeah, my gift to you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. Save you time and keep you informed. We floor the competition. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. 